0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning's scripture passage comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrong, I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The word of the Lord. Welcome to Grace and Peace.
1: Met you. I'm a on visit, Coffee. I would love like to meet you and get to know you. And if you have any questions, I can answer those as well. We're continuing our Advent series. And I'll open with this the question posed by my counselor. Why do you do that? Do what? I asked. I'm, I'm in the Sterile room, fluorescent lighting, it's kind of get that weird buzz, and you got that white noise machine right outside the door, making that weird uh, hum that puts babies to sleep, and there I am, supposed to concentrate and figure out why am I doing what am I doing. If it wasn't enough, I was in the counseling wing of the seminary, which was enough to write, read on a marquee, Vince needs Chrome. Okay? I'm, so don't just eye twitch at the moment, and it was right here on the top of my right eye, and I had daily heartburn. And so I figured his counseling couldn't hurt, right? And so I just showed up, and he leaves me with this question as I'm retelling the story. He says, why do you do that? You know You what? And so what I was doing was... Uh, every time I was recounting a painful story or an arc- awkward part of my childhood, I started to laugh. As I thought about it, I realized that I did a whole bunch of little actions that were showing that my life, in some form or fashion, was still under the ruling reign of the kingdom of darkness in a particular. Sense. That although I believed in grace, although that I believe that Jesus saved me. There were still some little instincts, little habits, little sticks little that I did that demonstrated that in my body, the trauma of the fall, the terrible things that have happened to me in my life, were still ingrained in there. And what the counselor was doing was trying to bring this to life to figure out what was going on. You see, I developed these habits as a cover for any kind of shame and failure. Because if I failed in any way, it didn't mean that I just failed. It meant that I was a failure. That I was a failure. But all of us carry these wounds. And we carry it in our physiology. The name of someone who heard us, maybe it is recounted for us and start to sweat start to stutter, become fearful. We have all these reactions, all these events, all these things that have happened in our past, and it's ingrained in our bodies. And mine came out in these little funny ways, like laughing. In a certain way, the counselor was showing me that performance was ruling my life. That I was under the kingdom and the thumb of performance. My type A personality told me that I needed to get all A's, that I needed to finish first, I needed to have no flaws. But he, my counselor was showing me that this was just a poor cover-up that made, it un, made me completely unable to find true healing in the kingdom of God. Grace, as much as I could preach it, was still a bit of a foreign concept, as long as these things dominated the habits and instincts of my life. As long as I covered up my sin by performance, God's grace could not rule over the areas of my life. As long as my sins were filled by the performance of my self-righteousness, and my efforts to earn favor with anybody and with God, I could not be free to grasp God's grace and receive it as a gift. My counselor was getting me to realize that the dark sector of my past was, that isn't really Lord of your life, Vince. It can't, well, you, you cannot allow it to Lord over your life anymore. The power is gone. That wasn't the kingdom you lived in. The kingdom of performance. The kingdom of your performance. You can't live there. You live now in the kingdom of God that comes by grace. By asking this question... Why do you do that? My counselor was liberating me, demonstrating how costly my sin was, and showing me God's restoring grace. In chapters speaking through 66 of Isaiah, it's is commonly called the Book of Glory. And in a lot of ways, it is a glimpse into what the future will look like, what God's kingdom in its fullness will be like. Chapter 60 previews that kingdom and how it comes. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and seek darkness the peoples. Oh, but the Lord will arise upon you and His glory will be seen in you. And the nations shall come to your light and see to the brightness of your rising. Meaning that the dawning of the kingdom comes in the midst of deep darkness. During the time when you find it most Sorrowful and hopeless when it was sin, when hope is failing. When you feel most needy is when God's kingdom comes to break through the cold. Chapter 60 is a preview, Chapter 61 tells us how it comes about, and it comes about by the word of the servant Messiah. The servant of Isaiah 40 through 55 is one who suffered on behalf of Israel. And for their sake, he is the one who is judged. And that they are counted righteous by the mediating work of this servant of Israel. In Isaiah 42, it says, I the Lord have put my spirit upon him. This is combined with the prophecy of Isaiah 11 concerning the Messiah, the anointed one, that says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the kingdom shall be upon his shoulders. And the government upon those and so what this means is, here in sixty-one, when it opens, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It means that the one who was prophesied as the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, in chapter eleven of Isaiah, has coherence and cohesion with the one who was talked about through Isaiah forty and 50, Isaiah fifty-five. That he is his servant, the one who has come. He's the servant Messiah to save these people, and he is the one speaking. So you need to listen up. And what is he saying? What is he saying? Like how God, uh, the Word of God, brought forth creation in Genesis, so the Word of God will bring about recreation in the new heavens and new earth. But Jesus in Luke four does something. It's a little scandalizing, and messes with us a little bit. Move 4, Jesus takes most of the first two verses and applies it directly to himself and his ministry. And he says that it is fulfilled or brought to its completeness to its full stature, full nature here in your hearing. Meaning that he comes to inaugurate, to start the kingdom, to break it into the present at this time in his person. To get the year of the Lord's favor started. The party has started. But he stops before the parallel in the couplet, which is kind of strange. Jesus stops in the middle of a poetic form that would have said these two things are about the same thing. At the same time that you have favor, you have the day of vengeance. At the same time, Jesus stops in the middle of that. To do something scandalizing and strange. In a certain way, he is saying that the kingdom has started, it is inauguration, and his and and he started it, but it will not bring, it, it will not be in its consummation to its full end until the day of vengeance at the end. And so, Paul, or so Paul will declare in Acts 17, Says, he has fixed a day now which he will judge the world in his righteousness by a man whom he is has appointed, and of this he is given assurance by all to all by raising him from the dead. His second coming will bring about the consummation of the kingdom, but along with its judgment. And Jesus says, "Behold, I am coming soon." And so we wait. In between His first coming and His second coming, we're waiting for the consummation so that the party can fully start. So we yearn and we long for the consummation of that kingdom. In the first coming, you see the kingdom comes by grace. Jesus is the gift of grace. The kingdom comes by grace. It is not earned, nor deserved, but gifted to humanity on Christmas. The prevailing kingdom of darkness, loneliness, isolation, lack of community, agony, misery, suffering, the prevailing kingdom that manifests itself in performance and telling you that you need to achieve, that you need to be something, that you need to be somebody, is defeated by grace. Jesus is the grace that the world needs in our despair, and He is a gift. So, We must get into our hearts today that grace is disequilibriating. Grace is costly. And grace is restoring. First, grace is disequilibriating. Grace is a gift that comes without, uh, uh, against kind of the normal way and operation of the world. The modus operandi of the world is that you have to perform, you have to earn it. Uh, A recent politician is. Tweeted out there in the Twitter verse, this is America and we save ourselves. The way of sin and death performance is an upside-down world. When Jesus comes, He comes to put the world right side up again. But if all you have known is this way of performance, the upside-down world, as my friend has put it, the right-side-up kingdom of Jesus is going to always feel upside-down. And you're going to feel dizzy and disequilibriated through the entire effort. Why? Because grace comes you to usurp the power and reign of performance, or the power and reign of sin and death. Notice the imagery here, in verses 1 through 6, especially, that there's this anointed one, probably a king, acting as a prophet and mouthpiece of the Lord, heralding good news. If you are a kid, you probably watch the Marvel films. And in the beginning of one of the Marvel films, there is this person who will declare the coming of Thanos. Thanos comes from the word Thanos, which means death. So the rule and reign of death. Oh, how good news this is. Wonderful. And this creepy figure it comes there and says, You have come to be saved by the great Thanos, and you're like, Oh my gosh, what is this? And that's what it's like. Here, Jesus is speaking. And he is saying that the the anointed one has come to usurp the power of the kingdom that was. Therefore, it's a reversal for everybody. What was upside down is now right side up again. In the ancient Near East, when a new king came into power, what would happen is that debts were canceled and that prisoners were freed. Because the reign of the previous administration was done for. And there was a new way of doing things. Therefore, in the kingdom of Jesus, those held captive to performance, to sin perform and, and death, are let go. For those freed in God's kingdom come, they enjoyed in full what was only symbolized in the year of Jubilee, the year of debt cancellation and Sabbath rest. It had come in the full in the coming of the kingdom. And it comes by grace. Therefore, we who embrace Jesus as the gift, there is freedom. There is freedom from the need to get it right. There is freedom from the need to be right all the time with your spouse. There is freedom to have it all together. You don't have to keep up appearances. You don't have to have the best decorations on your uh, lane for Christmas time. You do not need to have the best Christmas cookies, to be the best wife, the best husband, the best grade A student, the best employee, the best perfect match on huge Bumble or coffee meat bagel, or the best at anything. Because the need to be any of those things is only trying to climb the ladder of performance. And this is the instinct of the upside down world, and no, I'm not talking about stranger things. If you're ruled by performance, grace will only look upside down. When Jesus shows up, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. He does not say, blessed are those who have a 4.0 and have graduated summa cum laude. Why? Because His kingdom comes by grace and not performance. Those who believe that they had the credentials, the right to be saved, were those who rejected Jesus. Why? Because their hands were linked where their self-earned entitlements. They believed God owed them, and therefore they could not embrace Jesus as the God-man comes to them, the gift to bring them and restore them back to God. Therefore, the grace of God in Jesus Christ looks upside down to them. Who already knows? Look, look who receives the good news here. It's just the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the rebels of the state, the prisoners, enemies of the state, the mourners. And in verses 5 through 6, it mentions the stranger or the Gentile, the outsider, those who had no ethnic right to claim Jesus as their own, are the ones who receive him by grace. For them, Jesus' coming means the undoing of the reigning systems of corruption, control, performance, and power. It means that, in the, that, that it is in the, the poor, it means that the poor in spirit. The spiritually bankrupt. The broken. The unsearched. The deep searched The sinner. Jesus comes to those. And those who are self-righteous and are captive to performance, they don't get it. In fact, they couldn't believe Jesus was the Messiah because He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. They're like, there's no way He could be this one. You see, they believed by their actions or even their ethnicity that the kingdom was earned instead of received, and therefore they could not receive Him. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin, Flannery O'Connor wrote in Wise Blood. It means that those who wish never to be needy of grace, they just need to fill their pockets and hands of their self-achievements and performance, that they must become selfless and self-righteous and self-sufficient. But Christmas is the declaration that you need a gift and that it is you are to be needy of that gift. Maybe Kanye West is right. To the hustlers, killers, murderers, drug dealers, even strippers, Jesus walks the them statements like that of disequilibriating to the spiritually needy and to the spiritually greedy. For one it is awesome. To the other it is awful. So during Advent we need to ask ourselves, are we still amazed by grace? Is Christmas still shocking and beautiful? Or has it become routine? As simple as taking out your Christmas placement. Is it just a routine or are you awe inspired? Do you realize your need? Do you hunger and thirst? Like a lost wanderer in the desert? Do you feel your need like that? If you find the preaching of Christians as ho hum in a humbug, then we might be operating under the reign of the old femus, unconsciously. We will find performance everywhere. We will find our efforts to achieve everywhere in our lives. And we focus on other people all the time, demanding that they live up to these weird standards that we have, and that we couldn't possibly live up to ourselves. Not came down at Christmas. Not that we earned our way up. Are you needy? You see, being needy is the only way to be Christian according to Christians. The great cost also. Grace is free, absolutely, but it is not cheap. It becomes at great cost. Any gift that is a gift is received and purchased by someone else. Otherwise, it's a wage. And what we have earned as payment for our sin, according to Scripture, is death. But here, the servant Messiah says, and he's the one paying the penalty for cosmic rebellion, rebellion. He's the one absorbing the sins like the sins of a lover. Look at verse 7. Instead of shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their loss. Therefore, in the land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. In any relationship, it costs to be in it. You have to absorb by way of forgiveness the for debts each one will incur, incur by hurting each other failing each other, not living up to standards, not being the person you're supposed to be. In verse 8, it says that He will faithfully give them their recompense. He will pay for them for their sins. And then He puts His name in relationship to them by making an everlasting covenant. He puts His reputation upon them. He ties Himself in a relationship called a covenant with these people and it means it depends on Him. His name will be tied to them by the way of a mediator, the mediator Jesus Christ, the Messiah's servant. He's the one who will absorb all our debts and it comes at great cost to Himself. Terms like shame and dishonor in the ancient Near East are relational to a family's reputation. To bring shame and dishonor is to stain the name of the people your family. And to offend that man means you should be put out of that family and become disavowed. Here instead, the servant Messiah reinstates them, adopts them back into the family, and clothes and dresses them with the robes of righteousness so that they may be accepted by God. You see, we understand sin to be not just breaking the rules of God, but breaking his heart. It costs what we're done and it's treason. And so what did it cost God to get us back to maintain this relationship? It meant everything. It cost everything. When Jesus was handed over, He did it according to His will. Why? Because He loved you. God the Father did it because He wanted you to, back, to be back in the family. So Jesus was handed over to the enemy, symbolizing the hands of the enemy occupiers the Romans. And He was crucified like any rebel against the Roman Empire. As the old hymn says, and this is true, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. The best piece is a smoothie movie. Foreign film adapted from the short story where Babette, a chef who nobles in France has to flee during the Revolution, and she flees to Denmark in the 19th century due to revolutionary violence. There she's taken in by two Protestant sisters, Martine and Philippa, whose father was very strict and pious, and therefore they're very strict and pious. The congregation is very much like 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 the late father, strict, pious, austere. Uh, here, and they live according to this realm of performance, that in their self-denial, they can look down their noses at those who don't sacrifice like them. They're really just self-righteous type people. They have this mentality always looking down on those who don't sacrifice like them. So much so that Babette, who longs to cook rich food, they tell her instead, ah, oh, we prefer boiled fish and potatoes, And Jesus commanded to take no thought of eating drink. The sisters and the whole congregation are in to pr- this highest type of living, trying to earn God's favor. And they've hurt many relationships by this performance mentality. Now that she cooks the same bland meal for 14 years. The end of the revolution comes, she realizes she can leave. But at the last moment, right on the eve of the congr- congregation's anniversary celebrations, she comes into 10,000 farms. And she's rich. But she decides, instead of fleeing, she will use her money to break the congregation with a peace. The sisters agree, but they vow in silence not to enjoy. Thanks to, to indulge in such rich foods would be a sin. They were enslaved again to performance and not free to follow Jesus. As the day comes, rich and green from all over the world come in to be served at the feast. The congregation sits down to be served as the, as the first meal comes out. It's a turtle soup. They force themselves to be silent. But although they usually eat in silence, conversation begins to take off. Then comes wine. Bouvet, Clio, 1860, the finest ginches in France. The atmosphere changes. Someone smiles, someone else giggles, an arm comes up and drapes over his shoulder. Someone's heard to say, After all, did not the Lord Jesus say, Love one another? By the time the main entree of quail arrives, those austere, fear, pleasure fearing people are giggling and laughing and slurping and golfing and praising God for their many years together. This pack of Pharisees go and become transformed into a loving community through the gift of a meal by grace. One of the two sisters enjoying the meal goes back to the back kitchen. The same Babet and says, Oh, how we will miss you when you return to Paris. And Babet replies, I will not be returning to Paris, because I have no money. I spent it all on our feast. You see, the gospel is not another performance. Sl- you know, is not another form of performing slavery. No, it's an invitation to a feast where you are seated for free by grace, but it comes at great cost. It costs everything. Tasting the feet of the sacrificial grace, it changes everything and it will transform you. It will begin to make you love again. Once you taste the freedom purchased by Jesus Christ, you would never want to return to slavery. Why would you? It's faithless performance. Continuing to taste the goodness of Jesus Christ day in and day out defense the cost of the feast in His sacrifice, will enable you to release your hold on your self-righteousness and your demands of performance from others and allows you to be gracious to them. And lastly, grace restores. Grace is restoring. The Dutch theologian Herman Bobbing, whom I named my dog after, taught that grace restores nature, writing this, The redemption by grace of created reality, the reformation of nature, is not merely rechristination, meaning making things pretty like the Garden of Eden again, that's a simple way of putting it, but raises the natural to a higher level than it originally occupied, meaning that Jesus comes not to bring things back to its original state, but to bring it to its full capacity. Paul writes that the creation groans for the redemption of the community. Jesus says that in the reading of this, it is fulfilled. It is brought to completion. You see, what we need more of in our day to day is permanent bondage in our discipleship and less table news. There is a choral response in verses 10 through 11. Here the speaker takes on the role of leading the congregation, and the congregation are with the leader. Who for them. He is clothed in the robes of righteousness, so they are. He is beautiful, so they are. As He is fruitful, so they will be. Verse 4 states that the people of God are to be restored, so they are restored to be restored, to repair that which was broken, like those who returned from exile rebuilt Jerusalem. God's people are to live in the new reality, in the light of this new kingdom. Not the kingdom of performance. Not the kingdom of earning it. Not the kingdom of fake it till you make it. But the kingdom of grace. To restore all that was lost by the fall by His power and grace. They build systems of equity, justice, mercy, for God's glory. Verse 5. It says that they are called to be priests. Evoking what, happened, what was said of them in Exodus 19, that they are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Meaning they are to administer the very presence of God in their worship and in their lives to the rest of the world, wherever they are. Grace restored. Notice this is done bodily, and it's not a it is concerned with the real things of this earth. This place, as one theologian said, God does not make junk and he does not junk what he has made. The restoring nature of God's grace is bodily and it is not some ethereal heaven apart from the earth. The end of the story of the Bible is earthly, it is not waiting to be swept up into some ethereal palace. It is heaven and earthly. The earthly, nonetheless, hence the teaching of the bodily resurrection. To teach otherwise is to see her on the brink of the age-old heresy of Gnosticism, which is taught that the physical is irredeemably corrupt, and we are to escape via secret knowledge. But think about it. Can you imagine life, even eternal life, without the senses? Notice that everywhere it is talked about, eternal life, and also the end, the way, the new heavens and new earth, that there is always incense to smell. There is always angels to be held and to freak out about because they scare the heck out of people. That there are uh, things to be heard. There are things to feel. You will feel exhilarated in the new heavens and new earth. Therefore, your end is describing Scripture, there is always something to do with your fences. The good news is that Jesus comes to restore all things. It means that you will eat. You will drink with friends. It means you will play with your kids. It means you will run. You will jump. There may even be snowboarding. Still, the verdict is still out on skiing in the new heavens and new earth. It means that you will garden, you will build, you will feel, you will hug. I can't imagine recreated life without hugging my kids and laughing with my wife over things like the office in the new heavens and new earth. The kingdom doesn't come by human effort. It doesn't come by the efforts of our hands. It has been appealing to bypass the offensiveness of Jesus and its exclusive teaching by looking for that kernel of truth, which ends up boiling down to some social program. In the end, what this only displays is that we want the stuff of the kingdom and not the king. As one person puts it, it is a kingdom without a king. Call that liberal theology often, but we also see it on the conservative side as well. When we have things like the Jericho March, and we attribute eschatological teachings and different things like that, that this is our eschatological moment, and we put it onto political spheres instead of realizing that the Kingdom of God is much greater, much stronger, much more beautiful, much more strong, and therefore, we don't have to have the Kingdom of this world because we've got the Kingdom of God in come and broken through in the person of Jesus Christ and will be consummated one day when He comes again. It is not brought on by the efforts of our hands, whether on the liberal side or on the conservative side. You see, We are not the Christ to bring it about. We are not the king. To put that weight on anyone will crush them, and to put it on yourself will crush that kingdom. It will crush us all in our community and our culture if we put it on it. You are not the Savior for your marriage. You are not the Savior for your kids. You are not the Savior your friends need your company needs, or you need. There's only one, the only servant Messiah, the only true prophet, the only true priest, the only true king, the only God man, the only Savior is Jesus Christ. All others are woefully underqualified, including that person you look at in the mirror. Believe you're the Christ. Or crush the vision of Isaiah 61 is one of a kingdom that is constructed and built on the word of the king, proclaiming his victory and good news to the needy and restoration by grace, a great cost to himself. Jesus is the one who faithfully by our, is faithful by taking our faithlessness according to the covenant he made. The restoration happens, is initiated, and finished by the anointed one, and we are not the Christ. It means that everything that sin has corrupted, grace will restore in the person of Jesus Christ and be made more glorious than it was before. It means that one day, systems, structures, institutions, cultures, operations of the world that don't line up with God's kingdom, they will be brought down. There will no longer be housing codes and regulations where certain people will be held out of neighborhoods and directed to others because of the color of their skin. Fathers will no longer have to teach boys not to wear hoodies in certain parts of town because they may be questioned or be held in suspicion. Mothers will no longer have to tell their daughters to watch out for their drinks at college parties because people will actually care for one another. Parents will not have to keep vigilant watch over their kids for fear of them being trafficked. People will no longer look at others as objects of pleasure, but as people made in the image of God and designated with power. We will no longer use this earth for consumeristic gain, but the earth will be cultivated for the common good. We will no longer use food and alcohol as means of escape, but as means to celebrate. No longer will weapons of war be fashioned for destruction, but they will be made tools for food. No longer will graves Hold our loved ones, but they will be turned to flower beds. Memorials to remember the restoring, resurrecting, restoring power and grace of our God and Jesus Christ, who is light in darkness, hope in despair, freedom to the performance of healing to the traumatized, joy to the sad, community to the isolated, Savior to sinners and the gift to the needy. And He, Jesus Christ, at Christmas we do pray and we do sing. Joy to the world! The Lord has come! Let earth receive her King! Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing joy to the world the saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Let no let no more, let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Jesus Christ is the gift of grace at Christmas. He is the kingdom come by grace, not by performance. And we earn it. We do not earn it, we only receive it. Therefore wait paint patient expectation for his coming that you, the needy, broken, doubting, hurting, impatient, scared, isolated, alone, to you, Christmas. Jesus Christ is the kingdom brought home by grace. Almighty well, Lord and God, work in our hearts now by the power of Your Word. Make it effective that we would live lives of grace, understanding that it is not earned but received. Help us to be gracious to others, be gracious with ourselves, because we know at Christmas love came down and we did not go up. Transform our lives. Be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name.